Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network. Kick out the jams, motherfuckers. This is Wayne Kramer from the MC5, and you're listening to Rock and Roll Archaeology. Pantheon Podcasts presents from Hollywood, California, the devil's music with Pleasant Gaiman. You are invited to join the Hollywood princess as she explores her lifelong pursuits in the occult, sex, love, and that sinful rock and roll. Ladies and gentlemen, step into the dark parlor of Pleasant Gaiman as she brings you the devil's music. Hey, it's Pleasant Gaiman, hostess of the Devil's Music podcast. It melts the depths of my cold black heart to be a part of the Pantheon podcast network. Give me your soul, baby. Just sign right here on the dotted line. Mwah. Hello and welcome to the Devil's Music Podcast. Today, my guest is a very old friend of mine, Rob Zabrecki. He's a world-famous magician. He's a famous musician. He does Houdini-style seances at the Magic Castle. He's performed all over the world. He's an author. His book is called Strange Cures, and it's absolutely amazing. It's all... chronicles his whole life from a wholesome child in Burbank to uh, being a crazy punk rock lunatic and then goes into how he discovered magic, which we're really going to go into in this episode. And um, I'm just so pleased to talk to you, Rob. Say hi to everybody out there in Devil Pod land. Hello, Devils. Uh, It is my total pleasure to be here, Pleasant, and it's just really great to hear your voice and, and chat with you. Thanks for having me. Yes, sir. Okay, so let's tell everybody exactly how we met because it was this was in the 90s and there was a huge thing going on in Los Angeles called the Silver Lake Scene, which was kind of its own awesome, crazy rock and roll and art scene. And it's it hasn't really been overlooked in history, but it hasn't fully been explored because this was before the Silver Lake and Echo Park districts of Los Angeles got as bougie as they are today. This was just total like punk rock bohemianism at its finest. And and this was like sort of the crazy scene where Rob and I met and, uh, you know, the parties that happened there were like absolutely legendary, um, uh, as you will see. Okay. So like, what do you remember about our meeting, Rob? Because well, I'm hazy with drugs and alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> um, let me think. I mean, I would say we both had something in common that we were living on Beachwood Drive. And I was dating Annette Zelinskis, who was your bandmate in Ringling Sisters. And she was so, also flat on the saddle and the bangles. The and the bangs and the bangles. And I, I, oh my God, I mean, that was that was a, a really exciting time for me because I was in my early twenties. I just moved out of my parents' house basically where I grew up in Burbank. So I was uh, kind of fulfilling a Hollywood dream by like living in Hollywood below the Hollywood sign. And then 10 doors down is your house, which for a, you know, a year or two was ground central for really exciting people to show up and and I got to meet you know guys like Dave Catching and a lot of musicians and people that I kind of deified and and 
known about um, from first wave LA punk. And it was amazing. And I, I felt like you were right there as, as kind of like, I don't know, older sister, cousin, best friend, whatever, whatever that relationship that we had when we first met, I think we really hit it off. And I think I just did, I was in awe of everything that you were doing because at that point it was like, you had your band, you were putting out poetry books, you were as reckless as anyone as I had ever met, but yet you, <laughs> it all, but it worked for you. And you had, you kind of like, you had it together and you were, you were extremely functional and really productive. And, and that was pretty rare. And I loved it. That's true. I don't know how that part of it happened, but you were, um, you were in a band called Possum Dixon and that was like the it band of that time in LA. It was uh, Possum Dixon was so popular and went on to become, you know, have hits on like K-Rock, K-R-O-Q radio and, uh, you toured all over the place and stuff. But here's, here's one thing that I do remember about you telling me, I don't remember, I don't think the exact moment we met, but I remember after we knew each other for a long time, you told me that you were in like junior high or something and you were climbing around in Griffith Park and you saw me and a bunch of other friends who were in this lodge based on the Flintstones called the Loyal Order of the Water Buffaloes. And basically what it was, was all the guys in every LA band at the time putting on like sick buffalo hats and throwing like the wildest drunken parties ever. And we, we had a caveman party at the abandoned old zoo in Griffith Park. And um, you, 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 you were spying on us as like a junior high kid, right? Totally. I mean, <laughs> old zoo now is, is a public park and it's beautiful and it's, it's, there's grass and they filled in all of the bear caves. But in the 80s and 90s, I guess more like since the seventies, it was a, an abandoned zoo. So it became this meeting place for dropouts, junkies, homeless people, freaks, uh, and, and music people. And so we'd go up there all the time and hang out to smoke cigarettes, cut class. And, and it wasn't lived in Burbank. It was like the, the go-to place. And then this one weekend I'm up there and I start seeing these, these men in like, <laughs> Togas and who look cra like crazy, but like you could tell there's like a hip like music factor going on, and all this and girls in purple hair and like it has this punk thing to it, and it it seemed to me like the old zoo was taken over by a cult, and it was not. I was scared. It was like what the fuck, and you go there to be in, in hopes of seeing something like that, and here's like fifty people, and I remember somebody had spray painted that logo of the Loyal Order Water Buffalo was actually pretty nicely spray painted. Uh, it was this circular, it was kind of like a Mason logo. I don't know if you remember it. Yeah, it's, yeah. And, and I was watching them do this logo. I'm like, this is like a bona fide cult. And for years, like that, that logo sat up there spray painted at the old zoo on one of the old bear caves. And I just, there was no internet, of course. So I had, no, because that day you guys came and went, I left going, was that a dream? <laughs> and then when I somehow, I don't even know how it came up in conversation between us, but you got like 30 more cool points um, <laughs> books for being in that tribe of like, because this, I guess like, so I was maybe 14 or 15 and you guys were maybe in the 25, let's just say 20 to 30 range. So these were like older people that were like crazily running around. I thought, well, what are they like? It just seemed impossible to me. Like they, where did they go? Did they live in the bushes? <laughs> you know, it, was, it was really nuts. It was really a, a big question in my mind for like 15 years. And an obsession. Day drinking and Fred Flintstone outfits. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I had, so I had something to dream and look forward to when I got older. <laughs> Aspirations. Oh my yeah. God. Some kids wanted to go to college. I wanted to know what happened to those people and become one of them. And I kind of did. <laughs> and in my own weird way, like, so if that, if that fast forwards us to, you know, say that, that, that Beachwood era, which was right around the time of the LA riots. That's something else I remember around that. Yeah. That and that was, that was when Ice-T and um, Ice-T had a recording studio in the front of my house and all of Body Count was living there. Oh, perfect. Did you know that? 
I, pro- I probably knew that, but like, wasn't sure who Ice-T was because I was so funny. Oh, yeah, yeah, because you were, uh, my music, you were like a 60s pop nerd. <laughs> it was like, yeah, like 64 to 82. That I didn't know any, like, and it had to be within like certain, certain record labels. And it was very specific and anything that didn't fit into that mold uh, didn't register with me. And now, of course, I look back on it going, man, I missed so much because I was so like fixated on such a small kind of myopic view of what I thought was interesting and cool. Oh, well. But, uh, but um, what, Possum, talk about Possum Dixon, because Possum Dixon was the, really like one of the best LA bands or the best LA band at that time. And you toured all over the place and you were signed to Interscope, right? Interscope, yes. Yeah, yeah okay, well, thanks. I mean, that's, that's a huge compliment. Thank you. Um, and I remember that pretty that era pretty fondly. So I mean, yeah, I grew up in Burbank, and all I wanted my you know life dream was to have my own band. So I'm 20, 21, and I was going to Valley College, and I met uh, a guy who became my best friend, uh, a guy named Celso Chavez, and he was a guitar player. I was a bass player. We both kind of thought we could sing. Went through a bunch of drummers and other musicians, and formed this band in 1989 and started kicking around immediately in what would have like become, I don't know, like sort of post-punk, I guess. It was like, it was a weird time to, to be doing anything because like hair metal was all the rage on Sunset Strip, but yet we were kind of obsessed with our own view of like, we were really obsessed with like late seventies LA punk. That was kind of like what we had thought was, we looked at that as this very, um, like we just deified everything about that era. And so we kind of like modeled ourselves, not so much our look, we weren't like, you know, safety pins in our ears or anything, but we like had this, it was this punk ethos of doing your own thing and making your own flyers and putting on your own shows and all that really like struck a chord with us. And so we started kicking around a place like Jabberjaw, which was a coffee house I helped open with some friends, um, Gary and Michelle, of course, of course, who you know, um, Michelle Carr. From the Melbourne Burlesque. Yeah, from Velvet Hammer, and and has gone on to to do a documentary about Jabber John, all kinds of stuff. But yeah, anyway, she's it was an just like, too. yeah, yeah. It was a great time of self discovery and and to kind of explore like what I could do in the arts. That's really what I wanted to do is just find my place in the music world. And it was at a pretty at a a pretty interesting time where there wasn't anything going on like grunge, and I say that as I don't even know what that is, but other than that, when that Nirvana record broke it changed music entirely. So, but before that, it was a, it was a pretty mellow time, uh, you know, to be playing at clubs and kick around. You could kind of do your own thing. And that's obviously when we met and I was, I just felt like I was having this, this great moment of like, I'm like, this is my time as a guy in my young twenties, having a band, doing things, however I want, making my own flyers, inspired by you to make a chapbook, um, little poetry book called Music for Deaf People and even doing a reading at the Pick Me Up and just kind of really getting in that world of like finding a voice was all I really ever wanted, you know, like that was, I could have went to college maybe, like I, I think my parents would have been really happy if I would have been like a high school teacher or something. And I certainly had a lot you of friends. You would have been a know. really perverted high school teacher. You would have been scary. You would have been like one of, one of the movie roles you play. <laughs> or yeah. or like one of the magician characters. It turned out better that I didn't take that route. But the yeah, fact I is, like, I was looking at all that. But I'm like wondering, like, well, is this like what, you know, like I was kind of like on the fence of where, where to go. And it, eventually it was like, yeah, I got to, I need to just find my way in, in, in the art world, so to speak. And so I did, and I kind of like through, I would say through meeting you and a handful of other people that had been like in, in that, that, that world for a while, I've kind of ingratiated myself into it and found a small voice. And then as my band got a little more popular, um, we were able to, yeah, get a, kind of get a record deal and, and really we went for it. You know I mean? I look back on it as a time where I made a lot, an awful, an awful lot of terrible choices. Uh, and a lot of that was due to, you know, just being stupid and young and drinking. And but that's why your book is so good. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I, 
we're, we're going to talk about a couple of those terrible choices right now. In, in a couple of minutes, I'm not going to embarrass you. But, you um, could. I know you could. Okay, I, I probably could embarrass you, but okay, I'll, I'll do a true confession here. Okay, so speaking of cults and weird ruins, um, one time during the Hollywood Christmas Parade, which was like, it, it's, a, it's been a huge tradition in Los Angeles since the 30s and still goes on, although maybe not in 2020 because of fucking COVID. Who the fuck knows? But... Um, <clears throat> The Hollywood Christmas Parade blocks off all of Hollywood. And so for some reason, Annette Zelinskis, who we were talking about before from Blood on the Saddle and the Bengals and my band, the Ringling Sisters, um, and Dave Catching from the Ringling Sisters and more of you listeners would know him, uh, you know, as being from Queens of the Stone Age and Mojave Lords and Eagles of Death Metal. He was in the Ringling Sisters and he was also in... Um, my band, Honk Up Your Horny, which you were in, which we're going to talk about in a minute. But it was me, you, and, and Annette, and Celso, and um, Dave. And we got in Dave's big convertible and sat in Hollywood Christmas Parade traffic for like an hour and a half. And during the whole time, we were taking some kind of pill that you had in a baggie, and you didn't know what they were. But we were all just eating them and drinking in the car. And then we went up to the um, the place where the actual 1960s Batman series had filmed the Batmobile coming out of the Bat Cave, which is called the Bronson Caves. And that's up in the Hollywood Hills. And um, I remember we could still hear people playing like those, those crazy trumpets, like the crab, you know, those plastic trumpets that kids play. Oh, yeah. We were also fucking wasted. We were like falling over in the rocks and stuff. And I do remember like um, me and you were making out at one point, but then I, I got really pissed off the next morning because I was so fucked up. I didn't remember any of it. <laughs> oh. and I don't know. We were great though, right? No. <laughs> You're a great kisser from what I, from what I, from that blackout, from what I remember. Well, that's what I seem to remember that too. So, um, Okay, well, at least we both have fond, fond, misty watercolored memories. No, <laughs> misty vodka colored memories. Oh um, my God. But that was, that was, I just related that just when I thought of that to the fucking bear caves at the LA Zoo because there's so many weird, ruined, rocky places up in the hills of LA. Like, yeah, what is the attraction to like going to those, going, going to places that, you know, have, have your know, rock formations from, prehistoric times and getting fucked up out of your mind. I, I don't know. I'll, I'll tell you what I think it is. I think it's, I think it's because we weren't like the Manson family and none of us had a vehicle or we were too fucked up to drive to Death Valley at any given moment. You know what? If, if Spawn Ranch was closer, I'm sure that would have been, uh, yeah, that would have been our destination. We oh, fuck we, yeah. We worked with what we had, I guess. <laughs> yeah, we worked with what we had. I mean, not to mention uh, during, but during those, those Beachwood times, like, you know, you were just down the street and there was endless nights of us wandering down into Hollywood when it was such a shithole. I'm, I'm sorry to say it was like no, it a really, totally dark, was. For, really dark period for, for, um, for Hollywood. There was no renovations. There's there had not been gentrified and we were going down there haunting all those, uh, Mexican transvestite bars like Las Estrellas. That's Australia, exactly what I was Las just going to say. Yeah. And, and those, unfortunately, um, I, I was, my, my, my using and drinking was like black, it was always like blackout level. So unfortunately, although we, <laughs> we went to those places lots of times, I don't, I can't put the memories together because I was in another state of mind and I, I wish I had was able to monitor my intake so I could actually like remember some of that Enjoy stuff. Them. There was some, yeah, there was some, I know, I know that there was like some spectacular evenings with amazing performances and, you know, ending up just walking down Hollywood Boulevard and like being accosted by, you know, what few homeless people they were or whatever else was going on. It was, it was pretty exciting. I got to say, look, I, I romanticize it. It was an exciting time. And, and now, you know, you drive down Hollywood Boulevard and it being what it is now, you, it's almost rec unrecognizable, um, sadly. It's like a cross between like um, the the Road Warrior or Beyond the Thunderdome and the Grapes of Wrath, but with like a lot of meth. 
precisely. You've always had yeah. a way with words. <laughs> um, so then um, I forced you to be in Honk If You're Horny with me and Dave catching and Annette. Well, I, did, I didn't really have to force you, but um, this was, I'm going to explain to the listeners. Again, this was an X-rated country band. We called it Country Music Without the O. And we all had psychotic names, like Dave was George Bones, I was Kenya Fucker, and that was Tammy Why Not, and, and um, you were Fuck Owens. And, um, and um, you were playing stand-up bass. But I remember in the first show uh, at Raji's, which was a really famous punk club at the time, um, you actually like passed out on a hay bale halfway through the set. <laughs> And, but that was like par for the course because we thought that that show was going to be our only show. We didn't know that it was going to go on and on and on. And actually Dave and I, on um, it was episode three of The Devil's Music. Dave and I talk a lot about Honk If You're Horny. So I, I, I'm not going to go that much into it, but um, that was a really fun and sick band. Well, I think I, 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 I do remember this, the beginning of that show and, and having that that endless bag of pills, fuck, that followed me around from 89 to 94. Um, but I think that the photo, there was a, the, there was a photo um, on the back of the gas, grass or ass um, 45, where we're in your house on Beechwood, and I have like a knife and I'm like trying to almost stab like Pierre, who was the drummer, or Dave catching in, in um, Annette, um, sorry, uh, Nicole Panter's in the shot. She was in the yeah. band too. And there's like a bunch of Budweiser and bottles everywhere. And it was like, you know, the, the 1992 version of Disgraceland is from, at least in my mind. And uh, that was that, that was that show that night. And then it, I went on to like, you know, sort of forgetting everything. Uh, no, that was good. I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't meaning to embarrass you by saying that, but that was just perfect. That was like another time we had um, another time we had a, a guy that was filling in on guitar and he was all paranoid because he only had one rehearsal with us. And, and he was playing Elvis, you know, it was, um, <laughs> so he was being Elvis and he was wearing a karate gi that had kiss marks all over the crotch. And so he's like, I'm really scared. I'm going to forget the drum solo. And I was like, well, just like pull a bunch of, out a bunch of pill bottles, which had been filled with good and plenty. I was like, just swallow them and just pass out on stage. No one will notice. <laughs> But I think inadvertently we might have gotten that idea from you. But so then you were still doing Possum Dixon and going on the road. And if there's any road stories you want to tell, by all means. But I want to find out, like, I know it's in your book, but I want you to tell the listeners, like, how you started getting into magic. Because I have to say, um, I'm talking to you right now, but right now I'm going to direct my voice to the listeners. Um, Rob is such an incredible magician and I was already like hanging out at the magic castle a whole bunch before he started even doing magic one because I wrote like a really in-depth story about the magicians there and I'd always been obsessed with magic but his magic is like from another era which is also why you're so perfect with the Houdini seances it's like really macabre Weimar Republic kind of 20s dark looking magic you've got a really amazing persona so how did you come up with all of that and um i want you to tell us about the seances and how you were learning magic and all of that so just just start rambling about magic I mean, um, so I, I, I had zero interest in magic or being a magician. I mean, quite the contrary. I just didn't connect with it. I had no history with it. 
And uh, I'm on the road with Possum Dixon in the mid-90s, and we're on tour in Baltimore, Maryland. And we're walking around after a sound check, and it's a very hot afternoon. And uh, I wanted to duck into a, a shop to cool off somewhere, and there was an air conditioner outside of a magic shop. So I kid you not, I walked in, and long story short, I, I, bought, a, I bought a trick. Um, and that night, uh, after midnight, three songs into our set, Celso, our guitar player, broke a string. And I realized that the trick that I bought was a, a, it was a method to vanish a small device. And the device that I, I was sold was a small uh, silk green handkerchief. But I thought, you know what? On the fly, I thought, no, I, I, does somebody have a wrapped condom? Can someone throw a wrapped condom on the stage? <laughs> Which they did. And I made the condom very poorly. I don't know how, I barely pulled out, but I was able to vanish the condom in my hand. And the audience went crazy, and it was a it was a it was a huge moment for me because I'd never thought about being I was never like a joke you know like a banter kind of person. I just played the songs. I thanked everyone for coming, but I wasn't like a a chit chatty singer. You know, um, it, it was not my that was not my my thing per se. But this little moment of, of me pushing this condom let me think like, wait a second this was really entertaining for this audience. Tomorrow night we're in New York. I'm going to do this again just because it was just so fun. It was, a, it, was a, it was just a thrill. And next night it, it worked again in New York City. It was kind of the same thing. It got a big laugh. People were entertained by it. Condom vanished. Woo-woo. Um, truck back to L.A. 3,000 miles later. Get home. And my girlfriend, who is now my wife, Tommy, um, had a pass to go to the Magic Castle. Um, she was managing a nightclub called The Viper Room and got passes to go places. I just, you know, the privilege of working in the night, the nightclub industry leads to such things. And she got this pass to go, and we did. And we together walked in the doors of the Magic Castle and were astonished by the subculture that had been existing since, like, the 60s. The Magic Castle, if you don't know, it's a private club for magicians and their guest that's been there since 1963 and it's in a big old Victorian mansion up in the Hollywood Hills and it's incredible. And you gotta be, you gotta dress up. There's a dress code to get in and it's very kind of, it, it feels very fancy and very otherworldly. And going in there, I, I realized that magic was an art form and that I could, I had, I could, you know, possibly, reinvent myself as a magician. My music career at that point, I, the band had been together for like six years. Um, things weren't going great. I had gotten sober, like kind of like, but obviously um, from what I've told you so far, all that, all the drinking and drugging didn't work out so well for me because I couldn't do it. I was like, it was, I sucked at it and I blacked out every time or worse. Uh, so, so I quit and I got sober and, and I wanted to like find something else to do that was still in the arts. So that that was that was my real uh, that was my real introduction to magic and the magic castle, but what really happened and and as you you're a figure in my book that that is you play you, you appear in several of the chapters and there's there's one chapter called Run Rabbit Run that directly is 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 a result of um, something that you did once again you know ten years earlier I met you and you kind of introduced me to what I considered the, the under the, the last wave of cool underground music and that wave of LA, you know, post-punk or whatever. But then when I got into magic, you invited me and Tommy to perform our very new magic act at the Roxy theater uh, during one of the Ringling sisters benefits. Now this would be fine if, if for some magician who, you know, had a, had a solid act and been doing this for years and years, but Tommy and I barely know magic. We're terrible at it. We've never really, we hadn't really performed it. We knew how to kind of dress the part because we loved 1920s horror films and kind of had an aesthetic down. And we liked, we pulled some music together that was going to work and cobbled together some act. And you kindly uh, put us on with, on an amazing bill with like John Doe, Axine, I think uh, Steve Wynn from Dream Syndicate, uh, Johnette Napolitano from Concrete Blonde. Uh, fuck, I feel like, I feel like. Um, I think Flea was doing that show. Flea and, and uh, what and River Phoenix, and River Phoenix. yeah, all these luminaries are like doing something like what they were really good at, and then you have this brand new what the fuck magic act, 
and you like welcomed us on that stage and it was amazing it was an amazing opportunity and we went out there and we did the best we could it was not great and people people were definitely like not completely wooed by it but it was a start and it was something that we were able to kind of like see that there was something there was a there was a light at the end of this tunnel through a lot of hard work to kind of like reinvent the idea of being a, a musician to a magician. Um, long story to, to, to move the timeline quicker. Tommy ended up leaving the act pretty short, shortly after that same around 10 shows into doing that. And I, she, she moved backstage into helping me write and direct. And I just, that's all I really wanted to do. That became the focal point of my life as it did, you know, in 1988, when I wanted to be a part of the LA underground music world. Now, all I wanted to do was form at the magic castle. That was my sole dream waking up in the morning till going to bed at night. Like that's all I could dream about. And once again, through a lot of hard work and, and much, much, much error, uh, and, and a certain drive, I was able to do it. And I realized that like so much of magic, like anything is, is an aesthetic. If you have a, a point of view or a perspective and you kind of infuse the art form, the technical art form into that, you, you can, you can find a voice in it as you've done in belly dancing, obviously in music and poetry. I applied those same, that same kind of punk ethos thinking for yourself, figuring out your own way to do it. I did that with magic and now I, I have something that is unique and special and I get to go all over the world to perform at magic festivals and conventions and go on TV to perform this, this certain magic character who has this, I get it. Like I know I kind of have like a, a dark visage just by based on my um, physicality, you know, like it's something that people look at me and they go, Oh, he looks like he could be a member of Bauhaus. Cause just cause yeah. like <laughs> bones are, you know, gaunt. But anyway, point is, um, so I used all that to, to my kind of advantage and, and it's worked out. It was like the, the weirdest fluke in life where I, I walked into a magic store because I was hot and wanted air conditioning. I had an air conditioner. <laughs> yeah. And now it's like part of my, it's a major part of my story. And you know, this, it, it defines That's like me. magic. That's like magic with a K. Like through exactly. magic with a K, you learned magic with a C. Like it was just like, a, that was like a moment of complete synchronicity. Exactly. And I, I only wish there was more moments like that in life because since I I've done ask, Yeah, go ahead. I was, was going to say, I have to ask you about, um, Rob is also a mentalist. So like, uh, like when I hadn't seen Rob perform in, in months or a couple of years and I went to the Magic Castle one night and he was doing a mentalism show, and um, um, you know, you were you were doing stuff that was shocking other people from the audience because, like, it involved writing stuff down on slips of paper that nobody saw, and you had a chalkboard or something like that. I mean, we don't have to describe the whole act, but it was like, like mentalists are like mind readers, and but I, I still don't know how it's done. It's not like being a psychic. It, it's something. It, it's kind of like being a psychic, but it's also <clears throat> some kind of like carnival like sideshow shillery that is a really good art <laughs> i'm sorry I, I didn't mean to offend you by that but i mean it's just insane so i remember i don't know if you remember this i i wrote down something and i i, I don't know if i was picked at random or what but like there, i was holding the piece of paper that i had written down and i put the name of my best friend in junior high and then when you were reading off like the stuff that you were doing mentalism on with everybody um and you came to mind, you spelled her name. And um, she now, I believe, is married to Chris Stein from Blondie, which is another crazy turn of, of events. But like, you spelled out her name. It was Isla Schloss. And there was no way, like, that's not a, a, that's not a name like, you know, like Jennifer Brown or something. I mean, that's like a, a, nobody in the audience could believe what you did. So tell us like just one or two little hints of how, how you learned mentalism or what it involves. Or you can just go, moo ha 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 ha. It involves, you know, hard work and uh, commitment, you know, like, like anything. Okay. All right. See, that, that was, that was to told for in, a, in a true Houdini with the key in the mouth kind of way. Um, <laughs> no, no, that's good. I want to, okay. Before we um, move on to your um, 
to the next thing that I want to ask you about, or maybe, maybe I'll, I'll uh, no, let's talk about this first because I just remembered this now off the top of my head. This wasn't like some kind of research that I did in the, um, you know, like on you because I didn't really have to do it. Okay. So one time in the very early nineties, I don't really remember the year, Rob and I, this is going to sound so wrong today in, the, in, in today's time, but Rob and I were both obsessed with cops. We hated cops and LAPD was really well known for being brutal and horrible, but we were just fucking obsessed with them. Like I was wearing cop shades, like mirrored shades all the time. And we would just like go by it and see them on their motorcycles and just like, so I don't even know. We, we just used to talk about cops all the time. And of course that was when the show cops was on TV and when it had just come out and like, everyone's favorite like after hours activity was getting stoned and watching VHS tapes that had been made off the TV of cops, you know, like good arrests and stuff. So um, I called you up in hysterics one day telling you that there was going to be an LAPD recruitment thing at you at, um, it wasn't USC. What's that? Uh, um, LA community college. And, and it was like at nine in the morning and I was like, let's go. We've got to go. <laughs> and we were out drinking until like probably like three or four in the morning. And then like, I think there was pills or other drugs involved. And I called you up on the landline and at like eight o'clock. And I was like, wake up, wake up, Rob, wake up. And you're like, I'm high. And stuff. <laughs> Do you remember any of this? I, I remember I brought a gun to that thing. Uh, I, brought, <laughs> I brought a handgun. And I, I flashed it to you in the middle of the seminar, just as like as a shock value, like, ha ha. Like, Wait, what, and I got a boner. Wait, I forgot the way that I got you out of bed too. The way that I got you out of bed was, I was like, Rob, you've got to go to this. And he's like, no, I think I'm too hungover. And I was like, Rob, it's, uh, it's cops. And there's going to be fucking donuts there. They promised donuts and coffee and we can watch a bunch of cops eating donuts. So I, I totally forgot about the fucking gun. I forgot about that. That was Yeah, I had it. I had it. And I remember just showing it to you. You're like, what the fuck? And it added this whole <laughs> level of tension to like, I, I, I guess we, there, there, there was something really subversive about that. It, I, I wish we could go back and live that day again. That was kind of amazing. Well, I, re I do remember, okay, this is another thing I remember about that day. I remember that everyone else that was there had either just freshly gotten out of the Marines or there was a few like hot dykes there that were like dressed in crisp, you know, like button down <laughs> shirts and like, and like Dickies pants. And then there was a whole bunch of guys in striped shirts with crew cuts that looked like they worked out all the time. And everyone was sitting at these little desks in the amphitheater at the college and they were going, as recruits for the Los Angeles Police Academy, we will screen you for drugs. We will screen you for, and they were just going on and on. They're like, if you've ever had a misdemeanor, if you've ever had a criminal, and then they're like, or if we think you ever have, like, uh, have ever even once done an illegal drug or abused a prescription drug. And the guy like looked right at you because you were fucking sitting there looking like Lou Reed in your in sunglasses and a really rumpled up shirt with a gun in your pants. <laughs> oh, I, I didn't make the cut. You kind of just like what? I didn't make the cut. They didn't what? want me. <laughs> I know, but then I wanted to really make the cut because the test for it was on Tierra Street. Remember? Do you remember that? <laughs> That's enough to get you out. That's amazing. Okay, so even though neither one of us were LAPD material, um, okay, I'm so obsessed with this too. Like, Rob is a professional auctioneer. He actually does auctions, like for for like Sotheby's and like other great antique things. So I, you know, I'm putting you on the spot. I need you to like, just um. Do do like a little auction sounding fake ad right now in the middle of this for the Devil's Music podcast. Will you please, please, please? <laughs> sure. Next up, we have an original Germs Danger House forty five. We'll take the opening bid at one thousand dollars. Do we hit a bid at one thousand? Go one thousand. Go one twenty five. Go one fifty. One seventy five. It's bid straight back at one seventy five. You are the leaders. Any advance at one seventy five? Going for the original Darby Crash Band, The Germs, going for one second, we're doing here, 200 and 2.22 is bid, go 2.25, go 2.50, 2.75 is bid, go 300, 300 is bid straight back and right field, there you go, right field, the new bidder, there you are, the new bidder, thank you, sir, for bidding. 
It's only money. Keep the paddle up. Good. $300. Last bit of $300 going once, going twice. Sell it. Sold for $300. Oh, my God. I, I, wait, I just got more of a chick boner than I did that time when you pulled out the gun. I'm not kidding. <laughs> Uh, I love auctioneering. It's so fun. And, and it was a, uh, to, it kind of ties back to the transition between uh, music and uh, magic for me. So I quit music in 1998. And I bought a house, Tommy and I got married in Silver Lake for not a lot of money. It was a really amazing house too. And, but, but by quitting music, I didn't know what I was going to do. Um, so I was in love with magic. I had definitely, you know, so I, I had a house to live in. It was cool, but I needed to find something as a, some kind of a, something to kind of help pay the bills. So I got a job part-time at an auction house, which, which was called Butterfield and Butterfield on Sunset Boulevard in the entertainment memorabilia department, selling, um, working in the department where they sold movie costumes and props and scripts and ephemera and stuff like that stuff I loved obviously are you know have a massive love for and romanticized Hollywood history like like most of you I would imagine a lot of your listeners probably do and so I got a job in that in that department um, writing up catalog descriptions and measuring costumes and setting up auctions and stuff and after working there for about a year they start offering these classes on Fridays hey, skip your Friday lunch and come take an auction class. And if you do this for six, six months, you can, you know, start auctioneering. So I did. And um, very quickly, as word got out, being kind of in the art world, people started hiring me for um, nonprofits, um, Fleas School in uh, Silver Lake, the um, Silver Lake, Silver Lake, the, Silver Lake and Silver Lake School of Music. Did a bunch of auctions for them, um, Beyond Baroque, uh, LACMA, like you name it, I've kind of bounced around and also worked for, uh, you know, major auction houses doing uh, those those types of things. I don't do as much as I used to, but it was definitely like, it's still something that I can do. And I I very much like it because it's a performance. You're standing up at a gavel, you know, you're standing up at a, you know, in, in, a, in a very theatrical setting at a podium, you've got a gavel and one thing I'll say is with auctioneering, there's not a lot of room for, for human error. You also have to know where the bids are. And if you don't, people can smell your, the, the if you're, if you're, you can't really fuck up. <laughs> anyway. But thanks for asking me about that. No, that's, that's, I just think you've had, you've had the coolest career of uh, so many things. So tell us about, um, you don't know, the, tell us like, what kind of crowds when you're doing the Harry Houdini seances at the Magic Castle? And then I need to ask you about any paranormal experiences that you've had. Sure. Um, well, the, so for listeners that don't know, um, as I said, the Magic Castle is this private club for magicians and their guests. Within that club, there's a very s small room. It's a chamber the size of, I don't know, an average, say, living room. And... In the center of the room, there's a large circular table, and it's very dimly lit. And in that room uh, is loaded with Harry Houdini memorabilia. And what we do in that room is we have a Victorian-style seance to contact the spirit of Harry Houdini. So it's kind of the club within the club. It's a separate ticket. You have to organize it. There's like usually a dinner involved. There's ways to come to it if, if you don't do that but but generally it's kind of this it's the very it's it's the back closet at studio 54 as far as the magic castle is. it's like it's a super cool room and uh and i i'm one of the spirit mediums there i've been doing this for for 10 years and um it's a very formal setting so people have this fine dinner they come back and i talk about uh harry houdini and his life story and then perform a bunch of spirit effects, things that you would have seen uh, in the seance rooms of the 1920s, um, which helps me answer your second question a little bit. So, so in the 1920s, um, the, the seances became a real fad in, in America and in, in England. And the reason they became so popular was because World War I, 1914, 1918. This opened the floodgates for shysters, crooks, gypsies, and people of the like to... to 
start putting on these theatrical seances saying, hey, I know you lost your brother in the war, but for a small fee, I can contact him. I can talk to him. And the way that they were doing this was through uh, very logical magic tricks. So these gypsies and, and basically, you know, uh, uh, shucksters were, were employing magic to fool people to think that they were contacting their deceased relatives. Terrible, awful people. <laughs> what a way to make a living. Now that's, that's like super screwed up. Well, I became completely fascinated with these people and some of the mediums of that era who were as crooked as the day is long. And um, that to me was enough to like dive into that whole world and get really fascinated and really into it. So I performed the Houdini seance as a, basically as a skeptic. I'm not, I'm not a, a believer say, and um, intend to find uh, the, you know, the irony in all of this is, is, is huge. And even Houdini during his day would go in and break up these seances saying, Hey, you can't do this you're doing magic tricks and you're taking money from these poor people who are trying to, you know, contact their husband and wife who they lost in the war. Have you ever had any real life paranormal experiences? At the Magic Castle? Or anywhere. Well, here, this is the sad part. Uh, in, my, in my sober life, no. But in my drug years, uh, there was, it was all over the place. Um, I had many experiences, but it, 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 I attribute them to half the narcotics that I was under. Um, but I, I conclude now in 2020, uh, the simple adage that if you believe, you will receive. So at night when it's dark, I'm pretty, I can look in a corner and see a ghost uh, <laughs> whenever I want to, and it'll be there and I can communicate with it on whatever level I want. But the second I flick on the light and don't want to believe it's all gone and boring reality is here for me to have to deal with. What about, what about like odd synchronicities or any kind of, um, some, you know, just, just like stuff that like, co you know, synchronicities or coincidences or like, do, do you ever hear, I sound like a psychiatrist now, Mr. Zabrecki, do you ever hear voices in your head? Um, or, or like, how, do you have dreams that come true or anything yeah, like that? I mean, I, I definitely, I mean, I think like, the, I think, but that's, but, but and attributing that to what's known as synchronicities. Yeah. Then you, then you can go, yeah, that's, that's amazing that that stuff still, still exists. I want to believe, you know, like I'm always looking for that stuff and I'm waiting for the big moment when, you know, Elvis comes knocking on my door and he's like, Hey, let's go ride on my motorcycle or whatever. Like that. I, I'm waiting for it. You know, yeah, Elvis would say to you, let's go, let's go to the president and get us a narcotics badge. <laughs> exactly. And if he does, we'll, we'll have to do an impromptu uh, honk show. Yeah. Um, totally. But the point is, so I, I guess what I'm trying to say is like, in my sober moments, no, I don't, it's, I live a pretty, like, pretty, pretty practical, pragmatic life where I'm just, like, always looking for something but never really finding it, you know? Um, but then there's always great moments of synchronicity. I like, that's, that, what do you attribute that to, you know? No, but, um, like, definitely, like, I feel like walking into that, the magic store because there was an air conditioner, it's like, that changed your life. I mean, some people might just think that was an accident, but I feel like it was just meant to happen. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a hand, there's a dozen moments in my life where I go, if that didn't happen, that none of this would have lined up right. So yeah, I'm all up for that. I love I love moments of synchronicity and, and moments of revelation. Uh, they're 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 few. They're too far and few between. I wish I wish there was more moments of them, but it just seems like so much of life now is just just more so boring. <laughs> <laughs> you know, well, I mean, yeah, because of like, especially in lockdown, it could be boring. But yeah, I have I haven't been bored, but that's you know, I never get bored. But so I can't, <laughs> I can't yeah, speak. Yeah, bored's the wrong word. I guess getting getting bogged down with just the logistics of being an adult. You know, there's there's this part of me oh, that yeah. be fifteen and still, you know, not have to have the responsibility of being, you know a responsible person. But I, the truth is, is I have been for a long time, but there's just, there's, 
I don't know. I guess that that's kind of what inspires me to keep going though, is that there's like this, there's this inner like teenager that's just like make more cool stuff. What's the next thing, you know? And, and that of course enables us to like dream and, and get onto the next project, whatever it is. Yeah, that's what's good. Are you, um, what's your, what's your favorite music to listen to now? Um, you know what? I, I really like my, my music styles drastically changed over the last 15 years. I leaned really heavily towards, um, experimental and avant-garde music, uh, stuff I discovered in my early twenties, like John Cage and Terry Riley and Ornette Coleman and people like that, like sort of non-linear, like non, let's say the furthest away, the furthest thing away from pop. Um, but then I find myself putting together Spotify playlists that will include, um, you know, Black Flag and then the Carpenters. So it's still like, <laughs> I'm still like all over the place when it comes down to it. You know, I, I find that like the older I get, that that music is still super meaningful to me and and can get me right out of bed in the morning, you know? Yeah, I love that. I mean, I'll... I'll yeah, my, my music, musical taste, especially nowadays, is so all over the board. It's insane. Like the other day, I went, I went straight from um, Baby Got Back, blasted nonstop while I was having breakfast and coffee. And then, then it just veered into like listening to the Olympics doing My Baby Loves the Western movies like six times on repeat. And I was like, okay, what is this? <laughs> Um, yeah. Tell me a little bit about your acting. Have well, you done any like lately, or because you always play really odd parts? I mean, in a good way, definitely tailored to who you are and how you present. Uh, yeah. The, so, so from being in in um, in magic, where you have to stand up and and perform material, so to speak, scripts. You know, performing a magic show is you know, much of it is, is scripted. And um, through performing at the Magic Castle, I found my way into the idea that I could, hey, be an actor too, because I love performing and getting in, entering middle age seemed, it just seemed like a really good idea. I started finding roles that appealed to this character that I could already kind of do that is strange. He's a baron. I call him like a, um, the Herman Munster theory where he, he's really weird, but he thinks everybody else is like batshit crazy. Um, and that's kind of his take on everything. So, uh, I would say I was able to parlay that into, I don't know. I booked a lot of, about 10 years ago, I was in a lot of TV commercials and that led to small co-star roles into like guest star roles. And now that's kind of half of what I'm doing is, is acting. Um, I was on this show called Strange Angel about the life and times of Jack Parsons, the rocket scientist. Oh, wow. Yeah, who, who ended up blowing himself up, Pasadena person, sorry, spoiler alert. Uh, when I was really fascinated by that story. And so they did two seasons of it. Um, it was on CBS All Access and they canceled it, unfortunately. But I had a reoccurring role on that, which was just, it was this very gaunt, you know, I'd say few words, but they were always kind of very like weighted. And uh, most, of, most of the roles that I've gotten um, and continue to kind of go out for and get, I regularly now, my my real focus is to just kind of land a job on a TV show where I could be a series regular and stay in LA and work and still, you know, perform magic on an as wanted as needed basis. Um, but I really got the acting bug now. And I know it's like, it's weird. I'm 52 and, 
it's kind of like my third career, I guess, but I, I, I imagine I'll continue to perform magic as long as I'm, I still love magic and I will always perform it. But like, I'm starting to see the road of like a working actor. And I think I've got enough sort of talent and inspiration now to kind of, um, you know, make that happen. And it's really hard, like coming into it at my age, it's you know, most, most actors that are 52 that are very talented are they're well established. They've, they've already, they've been doing this since they were teenagers coming at it at 45. Like I did, people are going like, where'd you come from? And then they'll look me up and like, Oh yeah, I have this body of work in other forms. So it's, that's, which is kind of interesting to people in, in it's weird. TV and film people think rock and rollers are the coolest, but rock and rollers don't, they, they think everybody else are nerds, you know, <laughs> including magicians. So it's like, you can kind of, I think, like like John Doe being an actor works fine, but Rick Springfield being a rocker didn't work as, it was like a reverse. Um, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Of, it's not as cool if you're an actor going into music, but if you're if you're a musician getting into acting, people seem to go, oh, that kind of works. And which you've done a fair amount of acting yourself. So you you know, you, you, you've already kind of been down this road yourself. You know, you, yeah. you get this. Yeah, I like, I know I always play, like, I mean, you know, just how you're always a macabre character. I'm always like a hooker or, um, you know, some kind of weird, crazy cult murderer. <laughs> cult, again. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, or, you know, like a biker chick, like a, a hard-boiled kind of, like, you know. I would I would have yeah. been like a, a, B, a B-movie bad girl in the olden days, I think. Well, and you were in the film with with Jane that I saw. What's the, what was the title of it? Uh, you guys were jail with What's Jane that? with Jane Weedlin. It was yeah. called it was called Stuck, and um, Stuck. it was a women in prison film. And I fulfilled my dream because it was the second time I had ever acted with Karen Black, uh. which was amazing. And then, but it was also not only in Stuck that I get to. Uh, to act with Mink Stoll, but she was my cellmate. <laughs> so, all your Hollywood dreams have come true, Plaz. Yes, yeah. Okay, but wasn't one of your first acting roles, wasn't it some kind of necromancy or corpse fucking, or was it more innocent and Harold and Maude like? Uh, uh, no, it was, it was that. It was called a film called Decay, and I played this guy who worked at an amusement park who came home one day and these, these two girls had broken into his house and, and, and one of them trying to escape um, fell and, and broke her neck and, and died. And he kind of kept the, the corpse and had a thing for it. And, uh, <laughs> they, uh, you know, romance, romance in, in, you know, followed. He so, put the romance yeah. in necromancy. <laughs> exactly. And that was all based on my, you know, like this character that I've been performing in, in magic. And the director was like, just do that. Like he had known me as a magician. He's like that, do that character for, you know, two hours in this movie and we'll be, we'll be just fine. And it was amazing. I got to like, you know, live in Denver for a few weeks. Um, Tommy came out with me, brought the dogs. It was like, it's amazing. And, I, and all my, all my acting um, stuff that I've done is I, I just look at it as this huge gift because it's like all the, everything that I had done in the past is it contributes to, you know, I, I hate to say it, but you bring that stuff to the acting walls. Like that's all there. You know, you kind of like, I guess, I guess what I'm saying is, is I'm glad I've had a very, like what would you, you could call a very diverse past. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of, I'm, I'm, I'm cool with it. I love that. You, you, you are seriously one of the most interesting people that I know. And like, you know, everyone that both of us know is really super interesting. Well, that's a huge compliment come from you and, and, and likewise. So thank you. So um, where can our listeners find you on social media? And then also, you know, like I know that right now, as as this is being recorded in in uh, not quite lockdown, but not quite open yet, land, <laughs> um, and maybe going back into lockdown, we don't know. But um, where can they find you on the internet? Tell us your website and all your socials. Yeah, so there's two there's two things that um, I'm I where I kind of uh, have a presence. One of them is 
Uh, on YouTube, I have a, a show which we hadn't really talked about it, but I have this. No, let's talk about it. Let's talk about it before you do that. Then, how did I not even know that? I'm a bad um, person. Yeah, but right. We knew that. <laughs> well, there's, there's enough, we had enough to talk about, but I mean, um, a couple years ago, I put together a show with Tom and my wife. It's called Other Side with Zabrecki. And it's a seance show in which I bring on, I would say, well-known show business faces, uh, and they contact a spirit of their choice. So, for example, um, I had Jack Black um, on, on one of the episodes, and he contacted Kurt Cobain. And we do, like, it's, it's sort of what I would say, like a comedy seance. It takes a real stab at, like, the pageantry of putting on a seance. And then uh, I use interviews from say Kurt Cobain to answer, to do question and answer questions. So it's, it's very cut and paste um, kind of as a Dada absurdist approach to a seance. So um, I have 13 episodes uh, of that show online. Of course, so 13. Like, yeah, of course, 13 guests. 13 ghosts. Um, and so that's, that was fun doing that. And then, uh, and then I have on Instagram, I'm regularly on there, you know, posting, stuff from the past and present and it's Rob at Rob Zabrecki, uh, just my name. Uh, Z-A-B-R-E-C-K. Why? 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 <laughs> Why? Because we love you. No. <laughs> right. uh, that's, yeah. So that's where I'm at. I mean, that's, that's where I do most of my, you know, if I've, if I've got a show that I've on or I'm doing something or I will probably, when this airs, I will probably post something there. But I think Instagram is a beautiful medium to like, for this day and age to post things, it's so easy to throw up a picture from 20 years ago or something you're working on now. It's all, it's, it's just, it's neat. And I, I love your, your, your page is great. Thank you. Yeah. I love Instagram. I love yeah. Instagram. Okay. So Rob Zabrecki on Instagram and say the name of the um, YouTube show again. Other Side with Zabrecki. Other Side with Zabrecki. Okay. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. All right, so you guys, that was Rob Zabrecki. Sadly, the uh, germs record he auctioned off is no longer for sale because someone purchased it for a very large sum of money, a member of the Illuminati, I believe. Um, it was so great to have you, Rob. And um, I'm sending everybody out there in podcast land a big um, cinnamon-flavored devil kiss. And thank you again, Rob. Thanks for having me. This was totally cool. And I have always enjoyed chatting with you and it's super cool to do this one now that it's recorded and it's fun to share part of my story. And, and, and wait, well, I have one more question. Do you have a gun in your pocket right now? Or were you just happy to do this podcast? <laughs> I'm just happy to do this podcast. All the guns are out of my house. I'm a grown up now. I'm a responsible human. All right. <laughs> Thanks. Pleasant. It was amazing and really cool. Thanks for having me. Okay, thank you. One, two, three, four. Fabulous Rob Zabrecki. He's so magical. Magical with a C and magical with a CK. He's just wonderful. One of the most interesting people I know. Um, remember to check him out on YouTube for the other side with Zabrecki. There's all sorts of videos on there, including him and Jack Black doing a seance to contact Kurt Cobain. There's also a lot of Possum Dixon videos on YouTube if you want to see them. They're really great. Total time capsules, yet still fresh. 
You can find Rob on Instagram or Twitter, both as Rob Zabrecki. And please remember to follow me too on Insta. I'm Princess of Hollywood. And on Twitter, I'm Pleasant Gaiman, P-L-E-A-S-A-N-T-G-E-H-M-A-N-1. I post perverted things on both of them so you won't be disappointed. Anyway, see you or hear you or talk to you for the next episode of The Devil's Music. Mwah. The Devil's Music is written and hosted by Pleasant Gaiman. Produced by Aaron Alden. All sound design by Jerry Danielson of Busy Signal Studios. And of course, is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Find all of our shows at pantheonpodcasts.com. Our social presence is at Pantheon Podcasts on Facebook and Instagram. Tweet us at Pantheon Pods. All songs can be found wherever you get great music. Please pick up these important and fantastic tracks.